Hey, Deserving Listeners, today's episode is Chapter 2 in my deep dive on Dependent Personality Disorder. This episode is just for patrons of the podcast, but I'm going to have a short intro here. So in Chapter 1, I went over a full description of Dependent Personality Disorder. In this episode, I'm going to go over the causes as I see them and according to the research of Dependent Personality Disorder and dependency in general. This is perhaps the most important chapter because I think when you understand the causes, everything else makes sense. But first, I thought I would give my second case presentation or fictional composite of someone with dependent personality disorder. In chapter one, I went over Aiden, and this time I'm going to talk about a fictional person named Michelle. And uh, these are completely fictionalized, just completely made up from a composite of literally dozens of people. So let's get to it. So Michelle. So she was born into a family, and she's the last of four children. As a young child, she was very easygoing, and she was much easier than the other kids, although she was anxious often. She was anxious of strangers. And her parents appreciated how easy she was, but they were mildly concerned about her fears of strangers. As a child, her parents fought a lot. Eventually, her parents got a divorce, and she witnessed a lot of the fighting, as all the children did. And it was protracted over a number of years. Her older sister, Michelle's older sister, was parentified and took care of Michelle, Her sister was rewarded for taking care of Michelle. Her big sister resented that responsibility, but also kind of liked that responsibility. But due to her resentment, she took out her anger on Michelle. She was parentified in taking care of Michelle, but she also was very harsh with Michelle as a younger sister. Michelle appreciated the the attention from the big sister, but also often felt humiliated and small. And incompetent. As she entered school, Michelle did fine. Her teachers liked her. She got along well with everyone. But sometimes bullies took advantage of her because she was quite passive and nice to people. She would be internally afraid of things, but she would never talk about it. As she grew up, her parents noticed that she would sometimes talk like a baby, even though she was seven, eight, nine years old. And she would play with younger kids. She would also play games made for younger children. The parents tried to get her to stop, and they would discipline her, but the behavior never really went away. Eventually, the family just got used to it, and they said, well, you know, that's Michelle. The family saw Michelle as generally incompetent. Michelle was always, quote-unquote, screwing something up. When something was broken in the house, they assumed Michelle had done it. And again, they would say, well, you know, that's Michelle. Michelle also saw herself as incompetent. She had low self-esteem, and she felt like an outcast in the family. She was considered stubborn by people around her, particularly her family and her mother. When asked to grow up and and act her age, she would refuse. Eventually, that became another assumption about her personality. They'd say, well, you know, that's Michelle. She's the stubborn one. When she wanted something, she asked and asked and asked and asked for it. It usually was something self-indulgent and childish, like candy or a toy made for younger children. 
She would ask and ask and ask and ask until she got it. She would sneak into the pantry to eat treats and candy. Eventually, the parents would monitor everything she ate and put locks on the pantry. She would escape her stress as a child and a, and a tween by fantasizing about being a princess. She would write stories about, a, about being a powerful superhero one day. She often daydreamed about these things to escape, and her mother would, ch- would catch her daydreaming instead of doing her homework or her chores, and her mom would chastise her. As a teen, she would self-sabotage. For example, she would lose her homework. She would sleep in and miss the bus to school. She would pretend to be sick, so she would miss a test. She would forget to study for a test. She would drive her mother nuts with this self-sabotaging. Her mother would never understood why does she always screw up? She's all every day. She's constantly screwing up something. And her mother learned that she had to constantly monitor her and badger her to get her stuff done. Her mother thought maybe she had ADHD or something. So she took her to the doctor, but they didn't find anything different about her. And just a little trigger warning here. You might want to skip forward a few minutes if you are triggered by some descriptions of assault. At her first high school party, she got really, really drunk very fast, and she was sexually assaulted. This was, of course, highly traumatic for her. She didn't want to tell anyone, but she eventually did tell her mother because she told her mother everything. The mother felt bad for Michelle, naturally, and cried for a week. The mother made a resolution that Michelle was not able to take care of herself and that it was up to her to protect her daughter from the world because she knew Michelle would either screw it up or be harmed by someone or taken advantage of. Michelle found she was good at playing video games as a tween and a teenager, and she was good at getting groups of people to play cooperatively with her online. This was the one thing she felt competent at, so she played with others online whenever, whenever her mother would let her, which, become, which became more and more frequent. In late high school, she met a guy online. He was much older. She knew her mother wouldn't approve of this older man, so she secretly met up with him in private. Her mother found out very easily because the mother monitored her and also had access to all her passwords and whatnot and grounded her for a month. Again, the family saw this as, well, you know, Michelle, she's the biggest problem in our family. At 18, she met another guy in line. He was older as well. She secretly dated him, too. She liked how, quote-unquote, strong he was. She soon discovered she was pregnant. She didn't tell anyone, including the father, and she acted like her pregnancy did not exist. After six months, she broke down and told her mother that she was pregnant. The mother had already suspected that she was pregnant because she monitors her all the time, but she was waiting for Michelle to admit it. The whole family completely flipped out. It was just another reason to see Michelle as the screw-up, you know, Michelle, and they all chastised her and made her feel small. Michelle didn't know what to do, and she avoided talking about it, and she avoided thinking about it. She just wanted it all to go away, but it, of course, didn't go away. She had the baby. She thought she could be a single mother, and she had all these fantasies about being a wonderful mother, but she didn't know how much work it would be. Meanwhile, Michelle's mother knew she would be the primary parent of the child, since Michelle is always the screw-up, and 
the mother always has to, has to step in for Michelle. And as the child grew up and became a one-year-old, a two-year-old, a three-year-old, Michelle really became more like a sister to her own daughter than a mother. So the the mother of Michelle, Michelle's mother, be, you know, became the mother of both Michelle and the grandchild. And Michelle made a number of other impulsive and self-destructive decisions. Her mother would get really frustrated and angry with her. The father would occasionally get involved and also get angry, but he would mostly avoid because he didn't like the way it felt to get angry at his daughter, and he also didn't like the dynamic between Michelle and the mother because they would fight all the time, and they would also leave him out of things. Michelle sometimes thought about suicide. She thought her infant daughter might be better off without her. She didn't think her life was worth anything. As a 20-something, Michelle was dependent on the parents to pay for occasional bills and this sort of thing. Michelle continued to play video games often with others online. She loved her baby, but she didn't give her enough attention. Her family saw her as impulsive, immature, childlike, irresponsible, stubborn. When confronted, Michelle would regress. She acted like a young child. She would whine. She would not take responsibility. She would blame others. As a 30-something, she struggled with her teen daughter. Michelle had a number of difficult relationships with men that were quote-unquote high drama. Some men were terribly abusive to her, and she had a hard time leaving them, even though everyone told her that she needed to leave these abusive men. She worked on and off at low-wage jobs. Michelle's mother continued to help with the bills, as did the father. But the mother helped with all sorts of things, cleaning the house, parenting the grandchild, this kind of stuff. When Michelle was struggling, she would call her mother almost immediately. But at the same time, she hated her mother's advice. It was the same cycle over and over again. Michelle would screw something up, quote-unquote, She would go into denial about it. Eventually, the problem got out of control, so she would feel like she didn't know what to do. She would call her mom, but she was afraid of the advice. Her mom would try to resist getting involved, but things would get so out of control that the mom would step in and would try to fix it. There would be a lot of fighting between Michelle and the mom. The mom would try to convince Michelle to grow up. Michelle would feel small and helpless and incompetent. They would both cry and make up. Things would return to normal, and the cycle would start all over with Michelle screwing something up again, going into denial, uh, eventually calling the mom. The mom would resist. The mom would eventually fix the problem, get involved. Michelle felt helpless and incompetent. They would cry and make up. Things would turn to normal. Michelle would screw something up and on and on and on. Okay. So that is my description of the fictional composite individual of Michelle. This is a composite of many, many people that I've treated over the years, both adolescents and adults, by the way. And what we see here are four different, uh, you know, I've in the last episode I talked about Milan's five subtypes, and I added a sixth one, and I modified it. So we actually have four of the, of the six subtypes represented in Michelle. Let's go through those. The first one is the childlike dependent. So Michelle exhibited childlike behaviors, immature behaviors. She came across as inexperienced. She saw herself and exhibited that she was incapable of assuming adult responsibilities. 
And Michelle acted younger than her age since she was very young. The second type that she exhibited, maybe not as much as the others, but a little bit, was the life avoidant dependent, which is what I'm calling it. This is a person that essentially seeks a very limited and easy life. They are generally unproductive. They exhibit and see themselves as being very incompetent. They will refuse to deal with anything that could cause difficulty for them, and they tend to be in denial of their shortcomings. She's also, Michelle, exhibiting the enmeshed dependent in that she merged with her mother, and she was willing to give up her identity and become an extension, essentially, of her mother. And then the fourth type is the passive-aggressive dependent, which is a dependent person who is uh, generally nice and easygoing, but underneath all that is suppressed anger that will be expressed through hidden ways, which can be expressed through stubbornness. It's actually one of the red flags of dependency is this uh, annoying stubbornness that that people will ex- that the way I I've seen it presented is similar to Michelle, but the way I've seen it presented clinically is that these people will be nice and yet stubborn, which is confusing to other people. You know, other people will not necessarily label them as stubborn because dependent people tend to be very accommodating and nice and pleasing. But at the same time, when it comes to uh, adjusting to other people, they just won't do it because they have a, a vast sea of emotion of anger that they have never been allowed to express because of the way that they were treated and the way that they saw themselves. And so one of the only ways they can really assert themselves is to basically act like a terrible two. That That's what children, <laughs> me and the pod wife were just walking the dogs and <laughs> there was a fella who was uh, taking his a toddler out his his young child out for a stroll in the stroller and <laughs> the the uh, daughter was in a bad mood and you could and the dad was trying to cheer her up and you know hey why you know why are you having a meltdown hey you know everything's fine and and a plane uh, a jetliner was flying overhead and the the girl saw the plane and you could tell normally that they might celebrate the fact that they saw the plane but this child and i'm guessing the child is around i don't know three years old and they see the plane and the child says you know i don't you know i do something about the plane and then the dad says well what do you mean what what about the plane and the child says that plane i don't want it i don't want the plane (laughs) (laughs) and uh you know because you just know the history, which is common to a lot of young kids, that when you see a plane or a bus or a fire truck or something, there's this big celebration or a garbage truck even. It's like, yay, here comes the garbage truck. And and you just know that the dad and the daughter have had a lot of moments like that. But now that she's having a meltdown and she's in a bad mood and she needs a nap, she sees the plane and she she just doesn't want it. It's, you know, I don't want it. And, and when kids are like that, it's cute, you know. But when you retain that pattern and that immaturity into adulthood, it can be extremely frustrating to people around you, right? Because just because you're in a bad mood, you're just going to stubbornly resist the most normal of things that other people are asking you to do. And so uh, that's also the, that passive aggressiveness. 
And again, it's not because they're jerk phases, it's because they have a vasty of unexpressed anger that they've never been allowed to express because of the way they were treated growing up. Okay, so that is my case example, fictional, of the case Michelle. And that is uh, another, shall we say, type or presentation, a common presentation of dependent personality disorder. In the last chapter, I talked about Aiden. In future chapters, I'll talk about other presentations. So before I go into the causes, the etiology, again, which I find to be the most important chapter, because once you understand where it comes from, I think you understand all the behaviors thereof. I'm going to introduce the podcast. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast, and I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. This episode, if you're not a patron, this episode is going to end before the content begins. If you want to hear the full episode, you have to become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com. When you become a patron, you get access to this episode along with hundreds of other episodes that are our best episodes, and they're only available to patrons. So if you want to hear this full episode, go to patreon.com, become a patron of the podcast, do it today if you want, <laughs> and take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really do. All right. Welcome to the Patron Zone patrons. Love you so much. Again, this chapter, I'm going to go into the causes, the etiology. The first thing that's pretty obvious, obvious to cover is parenting. Everyone I know with dependent personality disorder and everyone who's on the spectrum Parenting was definitely a factor. Now, before I get into this, I want to have a short caveat that we have a long history in psychology of blaming mothers. And this is a complicated issue. Let me talk about this for a second. Is that, one, mothers were usually the primary parent. So when we're talking about mothers, we're really talking about parenting. So if in opposite world, for whatever reason, men were uh, considered to be the primary parents, then we'd just be talking about fathers. So this isn't something against women or against mothers. It's really just identifying parenting as a major factor in developing personality. The other thing to point out is that parents in general, mothers included, have their own traumas from their own lives. They have stress they have judgment from others in their society. They have their anxiety, their depression. They have bad models for parenting. So it's when I talk about parenting uh, having problems, I, I never, ever think that the parents set out to ruin their child. People are doing the best job that they can with the resources available to them. The, the most perfect parent on the planet has screwed up multiple times every day. So the best we can possibly do as parents is limit our mistakes. Plus, there are some parenting decisions that there's just no way to win. A child wants to have another cookie. And uh, on one hand, if you give them the cookie, you will help them. You'll satisfy them. You'll make them feel like they matter and that they have power in the world. If you don't give them the cookie then you are setting limits. Either direction, you're harming the child in some way. If you give them the cookie, you're spoiling them, you're maybe harming their health in some way. If you don't give them the cookie, then they hate you for at least a minute and feel like they don't matter and that the life is unfair. And there's just no good way out of that. 
Now, there are narratives that are just like, well, it's a good thing. Da, da, da. Well, uh, parenting is this never-ending decision-making tree of often choosing the worst of two paths or the best of two, the lesser of two evils. Um, so uh, when we talk about parenting, take all that into consideration. I'm talking about any parent, regardless of gender. I'm also uh, understanding that parents are really often trying the best that they can. Okay. So when I look at all the research and all the literature and my own experience, I compiled three different categories of parenting that lead to dependent personality disorder. So it's some combination of the following three. So we have one, this is overprotective parenting. Two, you have over-involved parenting. And three, you have over-controlling parenting. So let's talk about overprotective parenting. This is usually because the parents are anxious and stressed out. It's not because they just want to ruin the child's life. It's because the, the, the parent has anxiety, either psychiatrically or just trauma-wise. They're, they're really afraid. You know, in my example with Michelle, we could imagine that the mother went through some stuff when she was young. And then as Michelle, quote-unquote, screws things up, this scares the mother even further. When Michelle was assaulted, this was extremely traumatic, obviously, for Michelle, but also for the mother, and that gives the mother more reason to be terrified about not protecting Michelle from the outside world. And so there's usually some axis of anxiety, and which leads to overprotectiveness. And this can also be due to a child disability or an illness. Like you can have a child who got terribly ill. Children who are chronically ill or have heart problems or something or have cancer when they're young, there's a lot of reasons for parents to be terrified of what could happen to a child. And that could set in a pattern of, of behavior and assumptions in the family that, that the child is just inherently fragile, like a like a you know priceless vase or something. And so this can set up. So it doesn't necessarily come from bad parenting practices. It can come from parents who have you know really good emotional reasons for being just terrified of not overprotecting their child. Um, it can also come from strife, like being a refugee or what if the other parent was a psychopath and was abusive to everyone? Uh, there's a reason, uh, you know, it gives you good reason to want to make up for the trauma that you, um, you know, inadvertently put your child through. And for forevermore, you're going to make sure you're going to protect your child from those difficulties. It could also be if your child has ADHD or OCD when they're young and they go to school and they have all these problems and and you learn that your child from an early age just has a really hard time functioning. The child comes home crying all the time and you just learn, look, I, I have to, my child has special needs and I, I have to protect my child from the outside world. And this can lead to it, it becoming a generalized parenting practice, which can uh, you know, begin to produce the qualities of dependency, and which I'll get into later when, when I get to schemas and stuff. So this sort of parenting, the parent does not allow the child to take risks because if the child takes risks, then that raises the risk of bad things happening to the child and the parent has a policy of not allowing that. 
And we all understand that there's age appropriateness to this, right? None of us think a four-year-old should get a license and, you know, go off to college or something. So there's an age appropriateness and a developmental appropriateness, you know, because some 16-year-olds are a little bit more advanced and other 16-year-olds are not as advanced for whatever reason. There's a variety of reasons. So it's not age determinant per se. It's more developmental uh, determinant. So this is also a style of parenting that lacks pushing the child to venture off on their own throughout the lifespan. So when the child is four, the parent will be on the hesitant side of letting the kid go into the playground by themselves or go on a play date with other people without the parents being there. And if the child is, say, 20 years old, then the parent will resist um, efforts for the child to be independent in some 20-year-old appropriate way. And uh, the next one, this is a big one. This is something that I, I really worked on with families, which is that the parents in their overprotectiveness, they lack believing in the child. So when I say the word believing, I'm referring to this notion of, I believe in you. I believe you can do it. Not only am I pushing you to do this, not only am I allowing you to, to take this risk, but I believe in you. This is incredibly important because... A lot of overprotective parents, when I would work with them, they would eventually become convinced to push the child or allow the child to do different things, but they didn't really believe in the child, and the child knew that. And so the child, because people with dependency, remember from chapter one, they have a schema that they are incompetent. They believe that they cannot do things on their own. They are 100% sure that they cannot do things on their own. And part of the reason for that is because the parents have not allowed them to do things on their own, and some mistakes have been made, and there's been some over-involvement. So you can't, as a parent, just allow the child to make to make or to take a risk. You have to, at least in part, and especially the part that you exhibit to the child, believe that the child can do it. So let me, uh, you know, give an example from early childhood that might be very easy to understand. You have a child that is going to kindergarten. And you're dropping the kid off and you're, you're, you're wanting your child to take the risk and go to kindergarten by herself. But on the other hand, you're terrified because as a, as a mother, you have never just let your kid go like this. You know, maybe preschool you were involved or something like that. Anyway, and so you're, you're really, you know, you're on the fence. Well, if you exhibit on your face and you embody a place of anxiety Your child will pick up on that. Your child's looking to your face, looking to your demeanor, looking to your affect and saying like, is this safe? Let me even go further back. When they do these experiments with, with infants, with babies, and they will put them on a, God, do I really want to explain this entire, yeah, I'll explain it. So you have an infant, the infant's probably, I don't know, nine months old, six months old or something. And... There's a it's a lab experiment and the baby is on the edge of a ledge, but it's not a real ledge. There's a there's a plexiglass um, floor. And so if you're standing on the ledge, it kind of looks like you could fall off, but you actually can't because there's a there's a see through floor, if that makes sense. OK, so when the baby and, and you have the mother on the other side of the chasm and so. 
the baby approaches the edge of the ledge and the mother has a scared face. And through the experiment, they say, okay, mother, do a scared face. So the mother does a scared face. The baby halts in, in place and won't go off of the ledge. But if the mother has an inviting face and is totally calm, then the baby will just waltz right across the the chasm and step off the ledge, but actually, you know, just step off onto a plexiglass floor. And, uh, and it's so my, and I, I don't know if I have this experiment, right? <laughs> Some of you might be saying, no, no, that's not exactly how it went. But I hope you get my point that when children are taking risks, one of the primary ways we gauge as children, whether or not it's safe is we look to our parents' faces as we age, it becomes more sophisticated. We might not just look at their face, but we might communicate a little bit. We might get some vibes off what they're saying. We might listen to what they're saying. And if you as a parent are terrified on the inside and allow that to show, then your child picks up this kind of crazy making scenario where you're saying go to kindergarten, but it's unsafe. So the important thing if you want to reverse the dependency cycle with a child is you have to believe and this is where parenting therapy comes into play you have to work on your anxiety you have to work on your ability to handle anxiety and emotionally regulate and a big part of this is believing in your child and this is what i would do a lot with with the clients i worked with was I would try to get the parents to do this, but I would also just do this myself. I would model for everyone in the family and, you know, there would be a, say, a, I don't know, a 17-year-old who was uh, wanting to stay out late for curfew or something. And the parents were like, the last time you stayed out late for curfew, you got real drunk and the cops came and all these problems happened and that's why we are over-controlling in your life. And I would say to the to the teenager i would say you know what in the you say the parents just say okay fine we'll let you do this and then i would look to the child and I'd, I'd make sure the parents are watching me and i would say you know what kid i believe in you i believe that you can make this work i believe that you're smart i believe you're capable i believe that you are able to make your own decisions on your own i believe that you're mature enough to handle situations. If you run into a problem, I know you know what to do. I know you know that you should call your parents or you should call the police or you should get out of a situation. I trust you because you're a smart kid. I believe in you. And I would in my heart when I would say that because it wouldn't come off right if I didn't really believe it. Now, did I know that the kid wasn't going to screw up? No, I, you know, I didn't know. Maybe the kid would screw up, but it, I learned a long time ago that if you want to influence someone, tell someone who they are. If you tell, you know, I guess part, I, I, this is sort of inadvertent. I never really thought about it to now. You know, when I sign off on this podcast, I say, take care of yourself because you deserve it. I don't say take care of yourself because I don't know, maybe you deserve it. I don't know. You make your own choice. I don't say that. I say very affirmatively, you deserve it. And when I, because I learned as a therapist a long time ago that when I tell someone something and I believe it in my heart, they believe it too. And parents have tremendous power over their children in this way. As a parent, if you say to a child, you are a screw up, 
you know, like the Michelle situation. You always screw things up. Then the child will screw things up. If you go to a child and say, I believe in you, you're smart, you're capable, I know you can figure this stuff out. Maybe you'll make some mistakes like everyone else, but I know you'll bounce back and I know you're going to learn from them. If you believe it in your heart, now you can't know, and there's a little bit of anxiety there, but if you really exhibit that and you really wrestle with that idea, then that will help to reverse the overprotectiveness and the incompetent schema that the child has. So what overprotective parents will typically exhibit is a complete or at least mostly lacking of that believing in the child. Okay. Overprotection also involved not allowing the child to explore ideas. So this is another important area. So we all understand that there are risks like a 16-year-old getting his driver's license or a a 10-year-old going to camp by himself for a week. Okay. So these are those moments where you uh, have that uh, decision-making situation where do I overprotect or do I let them go? So that's all important. But there's also important decisions around children and their ideas. So uh, let me, I guess I'll just tell a story of my own life when I was a teenager. Uh, I think it probably isn't hard to imagine that, and we're in the patron zone, so I guess I can be a little honest with everyone, that I was extremely opinionated as a teenager. I thought I knew everything about everything. <laughs> well, I wouldn't go that far, but... But I certainly had a lot of ideas, and I thought a lot about things, and I thought I knew things. I didn't know anything, but I thought I knew things. And my parents were disturbed because one of the – and all the sort of pontificating and ideas exploring that I would do, some of my ideas were really quite radical. And I can't remember what it was that sort of triggered both my parents. I think it was something like nothing matters or something. I can't remember what it was, but, or maybe it was actually communication. I remember I have a vague memory of, cause I was kind of shy and anxious. And I, one of these ideas that came to my head was if other people need me to be, um, uh, small talky with them in order for them to feel comfortable with me, that's on them because I'm comfortable and I don't, I don't need to be small talky with other people to be comfortable. And if, and if other people aren't comfortable with me, then that's their fault. That's not, I don't, why should I have to accommodate that? I think I, I mean, I know I had that attitude, but I don't know if that was the one that triggered my parents. But anyway, I remember my parents spending some time trying to change my mind, but eventually they just gave up, you know, they, uh, they didn't control me in that way. Okay. So they let me make my own stupid choices, even about my own ideas. Cause I was a child and I was young and young people have ridiculous ideas. That's just part of the thing. All people have, I have ridiculous ideas at the age of 50, you know, we all have, but the point is, is we all need to be allowed as humans to explore freely without someone monitoring our every move and without putting us down. So some parents are so overprotective and dominant that they will actually invade the child's mind and require the child not to have certain ideas. And this can take a number of different forms. It can be dominant and just abusive, like a parent that's just like, I will control everything about you. 
But I think more uh, typically, it's because a parent is terrified of the child really doing anything independently and maybe even thinking independently. Because the idea goes from a parent point of view is if my child believes X, Y, and Z, it won't just stop with their belief. It'll result in something bad. You know, like you have a kid who, I don't know, he's really interested in guns. He doesn't want to buy a gun and he's not allowed to buy a gun because he's a kid, but but he has this fascination with guns. He just really like he likes watching movies with guns in it. He likes playing video games with guns in it, and he he draws guns on his on his uh, you know homework or something. And uh, uh, you know, let, let's just say in this world, there's there's nothing at risk here. The kid just has a, a passing interest in guns. Maybe he even likes guns because he's actually trying to break free of his parents, and he knows that they don't like him. Uh, thinking about guns and let's just say he has no interest in killing anyone or anything is a you know is a good kid well a parent has a decision to make in that moment what do they do do how do they deal with it you know i think a a a sort of a general healthy approach would be to sit the kid the kid down and say hey you know what's going on with the gun thing and saying yeah it's fine to be interested in guns it's it's legal for you to eventually own guns if you want to but there's a lot of there's a lot of things you got to consider. There's proper uh, gun ownership. There's safety. There's a lot of risks that come with guns. And I, you know, I'm worried about you. Do you, do you ever think about hurting anyone? And you know, the kid says, "No, I don't. I just I don't want to hurt anyone. I'm a nice person." So you know, you have a conversation, and and then at the end of the day, you're just like, "Okay, well, you know, he just." really likes guns. Some kids like cars, some kids like horses. This kid just likes guns and and seems to be on a good path with regards to uh, living a healthy life. Um, but if you're an anxious parent or a controlling parent, then you're, you're not going to take that. You're just going to say, no, 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 no. That is not going to happen. You're not going to be fascinated with guns. You can't think about them. You can't like guns. That's just not, I know what's best. And by overprotecting the child, you can even eliminate the child's ability to think for themselves. And this could be done in a very loving way. I hope that that is clear, that the, the parent could... Uh, in this moment be saying, I love my my child so much that I am going to fight against my child's fascination with X, Y, or Z. Uh, Or, you know, another, maybe a more common example would be the kid wants to go on social media or the kid wants to date someone or, I don't know, the kid really likes a certain kind of angry death metal (laughs) or something. Or kids' political ideas. You know, let's say the kid has, uh, you know, follows a certain radical political idea. And the parent always uh, reacts emotionally against that. Instead of saying, well, you know what, I'll debate it with you, adult to adult, or, you know, human to human. But I'm not going to tell you what to think because you're your own person and you're allowed to think what you think. And the overprotective parent does not generally have that point of view. They have the point of view of, unless I control and monitor literally everything that this child does, including what they think, bad things are going to happen, and I'm going to feel ashamed of myself that I didn't control it to begin with. Okay, I hope that makes sense. 
Um, the other overprotection element uh, for parents sometimes is that they are typically attentive to the child's physical needs. So this is important. So if if you're just overprotective and denying the child to have their own um, ideas and stuff, then that doesn't necessarily develop dependency. The parenting style has to also include a lot of love and and attention because when you strip a child of their independence, uh, but the child is just left on their own, then that's one sort of bad outcome. But if you strip a child of their independence and you make yourself available to the child, then the child has a way to alleviate the problem that you kind of created. So let me kind of explain this. So the child is seven years old and is you know trying to grow up in life and there's stresses at school and with friends and whatever. And the child is trying to do things on their own, but because of the way you're parenting them, the child learns they can't do things on their own. And so they're sitting there going, Bad things are happening to me. I don't know what to do. I am incompetent. I can't take care of anything. I'm going to turn to the person that is actually telling me I don't know what I'm doing, and they're going to fix it for me. And then you actually, as a parent, have to fix it for them. And so that that's what creates that dependency. You both strip the child of their competence and step in with your competence to make up for the fact that they're incompetent. And through that cycle, the child learns, oh, when I am in doubt and I don't know what to do, all I have to do is kind of flop and signal to my parents, I don't know what I'm doing, and they will step in and take over for me. Uh, This is bad because I never am able to feel competent, but it's good because I never have to face my fears. But a lot of the kids' fears is uh, induced by the parents' Uh, demeanor. Um, You know, a lot of the fear that the child has is because the parent is actually afraid and the the child is looking to the parent as as a guide for how terrifying the world is. And and if the parent is always afraid, then then they're always afraid, right? Okay. And again, I'm, I'm being a little simplistic. It's way, you know, when I've worked with parents in my clinical work on this, it gets real... It gets real complicated. One of the hardest, most complicated thing I ever did as a therapist was changing parenting. Uh, it was it was just such a hard thing to know exactly what to do because it's all a matter of pros and cons. You know, say I, you know, I'm, and this happened frequently. I'd be working with an overprotective parent, and I'd be telling them. Uh, all these kinds of things. And they'd be like, at first they'd always say, what? So I'm just supposed to let my, my kid do whatever they want. And I'm like, no, it's just a matter of balance and age appropriateness and, you know, baby steps in the direction. And, oh, okay. And then as they start taking these steps to, to pull back from the overprotectiveness, inevitably the parent would look at me and say, so I'm about to let my kid do something that I would never have let them do before, never have let them done before, because I'm because I was so scared then, and I'm still scared, but I'm learning that I need to overcome my fear. How am I supposed to know something bad isn't going to happen? And so I would always say, we don't. We don't know this. You know, allowing your kid to go to the party and stay out until 11 o'clock at night as a 17-year-old, we don't know that something bad isn't going to happen. Something bad could happen. But that's not the point. 
bad things happen to your kids? And then, and then they'd say, well, what if something really bad happens? And I would say, yeah, I, I get it. This is the conundrum of parenting since day one is what if something horrible happens? And it's almost like an existential question because there are bad things that could happen that could literally cause death in your, in you or your child. And we all make those decisions every day. We all make decisions of, well, okay, I I really want to go on this vacation, but I could die in a airplane crash or I could, you know, there's all sorts of these weird little decisions that we make. And a lot of the background fear that we have about everything and particularly for parents is what if this has some sort of dire consequence and living with that ambiguity is really important and well-balanced parents who don't have problems with overprotectiveness, they worry about that too, but they balance it all out. You know, when, when I was a teenager, I was 17 and I, uh, my parents gave me the keys to the car and I drove off and they had no idea where I was going. They had a thought of what if he crashes the car and my mom would frequently, my mom literally, well, I won't go into that, but, uh, well, my mom literally would say, you know, uh, I didn't hear from you. I, I thought you were dead in a ditch, but anyway, that's that's what you worry about, right? What if something horrible happens? But it's if you act on those anxieties every single time and limit your child's behavior at every step of the way, age appropriate, of course, then you're you're assuring a worse outcome that still carries with it some risks. You know, it's not like you can eliminate all risk from a child's life, but. You're, you're adding this dependency problem, which can last a lifetime. You're adding this incompetence problem where the child feels like they have no ability to make decisions on their own because you've given them, you, you know, this is another important thing to point out is that when children believe they're incompetent, sometimes it's because the parents literally say you are a screw up, you are incompetent, but with with like Michelle, for example, there, there were some of that, you know, the family, oh my God, you're always screwing up. But I think more importantly, what happens in families is there's an impression given to the child that no one really believes that you can do things on your own because they're always stepping in. Like as an example, uh, this is just, this is a fictional example. Uh, a kid uh, gets a, a speeding ticket, okay? And you, uh, the kid comes home and it's like, oh my God, you know, what do I do? I have to tell my parents, okay. So the kid comes upstairs and said, okay, mom and dad, I got a speeding ticket and I don't know what to do. And uh, if, let's say the parents, for this isn't necessarily the right way, but let's say the parents, they, this could be one of the right ways. It's just, it's just more complicated than that. But let's say the parents say, you know, they have this reaction like, oh, no, you got a speeding ticket. That's awful. How did you do it? What happened? But in the end, the parents are like, well, uh, I think you're old enough to drive and you're old enough to take care of this speeding ticket. So, you know, read the instructions or, you know, go online and figure out how to deal with this. So when a parent does that, they're giving this very clear message to the child that has many, many, many layers to it. On one layer, they're saying like, 
you're on your own kid now on this level when when you do bad things it's your job you know this is your problem to fix it's not ours it's not our problem you got you knew that there was a speed limit you went over the speed limit you got the ticket and you're a big boy now and you're going to take care of it the other message that they're giving to the kid, so that's a big one is just like you're you're kind of starting to be on your own and you need to think for yourself which uh, honestly would often cause kids to start thinking for themselves when you give them the responsibility. But the other message that you're giving to the kid is, I believe in you. I- I'm sure you can handle this one way or the other. And if you make a mistake and something bad happens, I also believe that you can fix it or that you can deal with it, that you're resilient. If you screw up this process, I believe in you that you will survive because you're you're a big boy now. You can take it. I have seen enough from you such that uh, I don't worry about handing this over to you. I don't worry about giving you the wheel uh, of the car because I believe in you. Now, if we ask the parents, are you worried something bad is going to happen? They'll be like, of course I'm worried. He's never had a ticket before. He's only 16 and a half years old. He's never been through this. There's a lot of things you have to navigate. What if he gets another ticket? And But that's not the vibe they gave to the kid. The vibe they gave to the kid was... I believe in you and I'm here to help if you want, you know, if, if you need me to help, uh, you know, you can ask, but, uh, you know, try to take care of it yourself. Now, if the parent, if the kid has dependency, then the kid will flop and say, I don't know what to do. So, you know, there's baby steps that you have to go through. Uh, you know, to, and that was, that's another thing I have to emphasize is that when I would work with families on, you know, turning dependency around, there were a lot of pressures and systems in place to pull the family back to dependency, including the child self-sabotaging, by the way, which I'll get into later. But anyway, okay, so that's overprotectiveness. The second domain of parenting that can cause dependent personality disorder is over-involvement. So this is another word for enmeshment, right? You hear me talk about that. This can be driven by... Uh, by anxiety, it can be driven by control. It could also just be driven by the way you were raised. You know, if you were raised in a very over-involved way, you might kind of think it's important to be over-involved. Now, when I say over-involved, I'm saying it's unhealthy. There's a spectrum between uh, a, a healthy involvement and healthy uninvolvement. But at either end of the spectrum, you have over-involvement on one end and neglect on the other end, okay? So this is a parent that is paying way too much attention to their child's every move. They're anxiously or controlling or just habitually just really watching their child at do everything at every step. And there's a lot of reasons for this. Sometimes, again, it's because of anxiety. Sometimes it's because the child has special needs and the child needs to be overseen a lot which doesn't really qualify for dependent. Well, so let me take that back. Um, it, can, it can sometimes mean that a child went through a difficult time when they were young and at one point they needed to be monitored for their every move, but they don't really need that anymore and the parent is still used to being very involved. But usually it's just a style and, and it's often involved in single parents with single children. And I've talked about this before, that one of the most common configurations of families that came to me were single moms and single sons, sometimes, uh, you know, single daughters, but for whatever reason, and I don't know if it was just because I was a guy and uh, which I'm sure probably was another factor that, well, you know, we have a young boy, teenage boy who's causing trouble. Let's find a male therapist that could 
provide a, some sort of mentorship. But I did treat a lot of these teenage boys with single mothers. And enmeshment was almost always a big part of the problem. I, I talk about this example sometimes where I was treating this one family and the teenage boy uh, was describing to me and the mother the way he felt in this enmeshed state. And he said, when we're sitting in the living room watching TV, I can't stand listening to her breathe. He said, I can't, I can't stand it when I can hear her breathing. And I just thought, whoa, that is enmeshment for you. When you are so invaded and you're so tired and so uh, annoyed with someone and you can't breathe yourself, every little thing the other person does just drives you crazy, right? You just imagine two people stuck on a deserted island that's, that's you know, very, very small and eventually you just get real tired of each other. And that's what enmeshment will do. And when you have a single parent, and a single child, you're more at risk of that because there's no distractions. There's no triangulation. There's no other people to get, to get involved. And the reason why I say it's single mothers is because uh, almost, I don't know, 95% of the families that I treated, the, the father was the generally the non-custodial parent for, again, various different reasons, uh, socialization being one. But anyway... So over-involvement, enmeshment, paying way too much attention to the child's every move, defining yourself as a parent through the child, doing things for the child, not letting the child think for themselves, not valuing the child as a separate person, not being differentiated, using guilt to keep the child close, and the child will use guilt to keep the parent close. So because uh, guilt is, is the communication of the enmeshment. And uh, uh, the idea here is that as these two people who really want to be close, you know, they want love, they believe that if there's difference, that bad things will happen, either something horrible happen like death or something, or they will lose the closest that they have. So, uh, and this can be both ways with a dependent person, it is both ways. So with the dependent child and the over-involved parent, they both participate in this. They both guilt trip the other. They both invade the other person's space. They both, you know, with Michelle and her mom, uh, with, with Michelle, when she got pregnant, she, she didn't want to tell her mom. She didn't want to involve her mom because she knew what her mom would say. She knew her family would chastise her. She, she didn't want to go to them, but she, uh, other unconsciously or something out of guilt, maybe told her mom anyway and dragged her mom into it. And then instead of the mom saying like, well, you know, it's your issue and, you know, deal with it as you will. I'm, I'm here to help you. But, well, that's kind of a bad example because most parents would want to help in a material way. But, but, um, Anyway, I hope it, I hope it makes uh, I hope it's clear that this over involvement and enmeshment is another uh, factor frequently in the parenting of developing someone with dependent personality disorder. The third is over control, and it, it it's uh, not always present controlling, but it but it can be, and 
this is a controlling parent, just someone who's quote unquote authoritarian. They're often emotionally requiring the child to comply. They'll punish the child for uh, not complying. They'll punish the child even for thinking for themselves. They'll correct the child often. They'll bulldoze. You'll hear me use that term of a bulldozing style of parenting. Um, And there can sometimes be even subtle rejection for independent behavior and subtle rewards for dependent behavior. So what would that look like? So let's say you have a kid who is, I don't know, he's 20 years old, or let's go to Michelle. So Michelle is starting to think about uh, making money playing video games. Okay, she's 20 years old, and she starts talking about, um, you know what, I'm thinking about making money on video games. Of course, she tells her mom this because she tells her mom everything. And the mom has this reaction of like, huh. And let's even just leave it at that. Like the mom doesn't say overtly that she doesn't approve of this because what this is, is it's in, it's, it's independent in a lot of ways in the way I'm defining it. So the mother doesn't maybe a different generation thing. The mother doesn't want Michelle to play video games. Michelle has this inkling of a thought, whether it's functional or not. She's just like, huh, I'm having a thought that is not shared by my mother. But I still kind of like this thought. I like video games. Maybe there's a way I could work in the video game industry or something like this. And the mother hears this. And instead of saying something like, well, good for you, you know, maybe you can uh, develop into that, you know, let me know if you need to any help with that. You know, there's, there's colleges, there's jobs, you know, I could introduce you to someone who works in the video game industry or whatever. That would be encouraging the child. But let's say the mother just goes, huh, interesting. So doesn't overtly reject it, but definitely doesn't reward it, right? And then let's say that the child, uh, the Michelle at the age of 20, uh, a little bit later, she gets a little fresh and she's like, yeah, I don't know, maybe there's no money in video games or something like that. And the mother then says, yeah, that's probably a smart choice. So the mother isn't being like, you, from the outside, you wouldn't say like, whoa, that's really controlling and abusive and dominant, but it's subtle. It, and that's, that's what enmeshment is like. And, and if you've ever been in an enmeshed relationship, you know what I'm talking about. It's subtle. Uh, it, it can be subtle. It can be very overt, but it also can just be very subtle. It, it's essentially, enmeshment is the imposition of agendas is another way to put it. It's like you, you feel the agenda. You feel the other person and their agenda. You know what's going on. It doesn't need to be said out loud, but you know, and it's emotional, you know, that you're getting these emotional communications from the other person. And that's why it's so insidious because it's often, I would say 99% of the time, it's communicated through these really insidious ways in a way that the parent might not even understand it's happening. They might not even really be conscious of the fact that they have an agenda, one, and two, that they're subtly communicating it, too, and three, that the child is accommodating your weird agenda that you don't even know about. And so that's another element of control. Now, of course, you can just have flat-out control where a parent is saying, you're not going to do that. I'm not going to let you. 
you are not going to date that person. You are not going to have that career. You are not going to have a Facebook account or, you know, whatever it is. You know, there's all these kind of controlling things that you, one might be able to do. Okay. So the other fact, so those are the three things. We have overprotectiveness, overinvolvement, and overcontrol. Some combination of that and some flavor of that. And overprotection usually is the main one, but it doesn't have to be there. You can you can just be purely overcontrolling and produce a dependent child as long as you also meet the child's dependency needs. You have to have these uh, parenting styles of some combination. And as the child needs you, you're there. You're there to pick up the pieces. You're there to solve other problems. Now, another factor in parenting that can lead to dependent personality disorder is parents who have dependent personality disorder. Uh, parents who have, you know, when Michelle grows up, it's, as Michelle parents her daughter, it's possible that her daughter will also develop dependent personality disorder. It's not a high likelihood, but it raises the risk. Well, why would that be? Well, it's because... As a parent, Michelle will be fairly um, immature and will tend to neglect the child and will not be there all the time. And what this does is it creates this, this feeling in the child that they have to constantly reach out in order to get their dependency needs met, which can cause separation anxiety, which can lead to over-dependency on the parent. Okay. All right, so let's talk a little bit more about parenting here. So another uh, factor, another pathway to dependent personality disorder is the way in which temperament matches up with parenting style. So uh, when I read all the research, it's really hard to pin down this cause because it's so multifactorial. But my speculation, and I've seen this before, is that Let's say you have a child that's born a little bit more anxious than other child, other children. And if you've ever been around young children, you know, zero to three, you know that all children come into the world with some temperament. Some kids are more anxious than others. Some kids are more impulsive. Some kids are more aggressive. Some kids love other people. Some kids don't love other people. And so if a child, according to my speculation, based on the research, comes into the world with a little bit more anxiety, maybe a lot more anxiety than other kids, or and or maybe a little bit more anxious around strangers, then what can happen is that the parents naturally want to help the child with the anxiety, and they are potentially getting frustrated with the child because the child is so anxious all the time and the parents don't know how to accommodate that. So the, the parents eventually just take over. You know, the, the, the child is anxious. The parents don't know how to deal with it. They, they're getting frustrated. They're, they're, trying to, they're trying to help the kid to be a little bit independent for their age at the age of three or something. And then eventually the parent just throws their hands up and says, fine, I'll do it. And what this sets up is a mistreatment of the child because the child feels rejected in that moment. The child feels alone. The child feels incompetent. So the child is anxious and incompetent now. 
And now the parent is frustrated. There's some rejection there. And it sets up this ongoing systemic causal loop where the child feels more and more alone and incompetent. The parent feels more and more frustrated and in need of compensating for their child's incompetence. And you rinse and repeat that over and over again. And and then you get a child with dependent personality disorder. So you could have a parent who if given a different child with a different temperament, would have been fine. But because the child entered the world with high anxiety or some other temperamental issue, it can create this feedback loop between a parent and the child that can result in dependent personality disorder. I hope that makes sense. Uh, Abuse and mistreatment, according to research, are definitely associated with dependent personality disorder and all personality disorders. But again, it has to be matched up with the dynamics I've been talking about before in terms of overprotectiveness, overinvolvement, overcontrol. You can't just have a child that's abused develop dependent personality disorder. There has, there has to be these other factors. The other thing to think about is that cultural differences can produce the higher likelihood of dependent personality disorder. And this is hard to lock down in terms of research, but uh, it seems uh, perfectly reasonable to imagine that some cultures have parenting practices that are more likely to produce dependent personality disorder. Like there are some cultures that will infantilize girls and won't let them take risks, for example. So in some cultures, you might find more young girls developing dependent personality disorder. Or some cultures might require one of the children to never leave the home, and so they might uh, in- subtly, emotionally encourage the child to never want to leave the home and and maybe through socialization make the child feel like they can't leave the home even if they wanted to, that kind of thing. And some cultures are more overprotective. Uh, this is just a total speculation that right now in the United States, we have on average, and I think some research uh, demonstrates this, that parents are much more protective of their kids these days. Now, one can argue there's a lot more threats these days, I don't know, but but uh, I would suspect, and this is a hard thing to measure and a hard thing to, to know, but I would suspect with so-called helicopter parenting that we're going to see a higher rate of dependent personality disorder in the future. Because in contrast, like when I was growing up, and I, I'm on the whole, I'm the other side of the spectrum, like I was saying in the last chapter, from, if anything, I'm pathologically independent, and I have, I have zero dependency. <laughs> now, why is that? Well, my parents came from a school of parenting where it was like, well, you got four kids. If you lose one, you, you got three other ones. <laughs> and I joke about that, but... Uh, the style of parenting would look like that to people. You know, in the 70s, the the style of parenting was, well, you know, uh, get out of my hair. I got I got stuff to do and go outside and play. And if I don't hear anyone crying and if there's no blood, then, you know, deal with it yourself. And that's the way it was. And so from an early age, like as an example, when I was four years old, I was climbing trees by myself without any supervision without even any friends around. I just loved climbing trees. I just loved it. And I would climb the tallest old pine trees in our forest in the backyard and and no one knew. I mean, it was just 
the style of parenting back then. All my friends were the same way. We, we would all climb these trees, and none of our parents, not only did they not know we were climbing trees, they didn't even know where we were. <laughs> and sometimes we would just wander off like miles away from home at the age of like seven or eight, and you know, there's no cell phones or anything. And our parents just, they didn't even care. Like if they came outside, I wonder where they are. They didn't care. Oh, I'm sure they're somewhere. Now, you could say that there's some risks to that and there's some bad things, but I'll tell you one pro, one advantage to that style of parenting was we all developed a extremely independent mind and lifestyle. We learned from an early age that we could do things on our own and we were expected to do things on our own and we were capable and that people believed in us. You know, the, the message of, go ahead and go out and play with your friends. I'm sure you'll figure it out because I believe in you really made us feel like we could do things on our own. And we did, and we handled it and nothing bad ever happened. I mean, a couple of bad things happened, but nothing terrible. And uh, so now again, you could say that there's a lot of bad parts of that parenting. And for sure there's parenting is complicated. There's a lot of different decisions one has to make. But I worry about today's parenting. And, you know, and this is just something of my generation. I'm sure like half of Gen Xers say this sort of thing. That helicopter parenting, there's going to be, there's pros and cons. The the pros are that uh, your, your kid is more safe. Another pro is that you might have more intimacy with your child you might have more warmth and sort of contact with your child you know you might have be more like friends where you know things about each other and about each other's lives so that's a pro but i think a con is is that you're developing children that are generally more dependent on you and don't believe in themselves there's nothing wrong with dependency right there's nothing wrong with a child Uh, or anyone, there's nothing wrong with, like, I'm dependent on my wife for a lot of things. There's nothing wrong with me depending on her emotionally, physically, practically, right? You know, when I'm scared, I go to her, I depend on her, I need her. That's important. But, But I also believe I'm competent to do things on my own. That's the key. How do you helicopter, you know, parent your children while also letting them make their own mistakes so that they can learn from their mistakes and also learn that they can handle their own mistakes. That's important. And that, that would be a big thing I'd be talking with parents. And, you know, I hope it's clear that when I worked with these parents, it was a lot of inspiration. You know, I could lay this all out to them. Like I could make them listen to this episode and it wouldn't really change them. Even if they believed me, they'd be like, okay, well, that's fine and good, but I, I don't know how I'm going to do that. It was a lot of charismatic therapy. <laughs> it was a lot of me like, being convincing with my words and my emphasis. So a big part of my charismatic convincing of the parents therapeutically was that you need to not only let your child make mistakes within reason, but you have to make them believe that they are able to make mistakes and able to make up for those mistakes. You have to You know, because a lot of parents would say like, well, what if they make a mistake? And I'd be like, that is good. Mistakes are how people learn. Like for me, for example, uh, I I remember noticing when I turned 16, I remember noticing like when everyone gets their license, the first sort of month or two they get their license, they drive like crazy people. 
They're all over the road. They're driving fast. And then everyone has something kind of scary happen to them. And then they learn from that mistake. And then they, then they drive safe. And I was the same way. And I remember noticing that. I was like, it's almost like you just – because we took driver's ed. Everyone told us, look, drive safe. Drive the speed limit. You could die in car accidents. You know, we saw all the videos and all the kinds of things. But until you experience it, you don't really know it. And, you know, we could we could eliminate so many problems if this wasn't true, right? If if it was possible to talk to our children and say, learn from my mistakes. You don't have to you don't have to make the same mistakes I did because I made them for you. Here is everything I learned. You don't have to use alcohol. You don't have to give in on things. You can be assertive. You know, you, you could tell your kid all this stuff, and it helps for sure. It's not like it doesn't help. But the idea that you can eliminate the possibility of mistakes is ridiculous. And then the other thing is, is looking at mistakes that your children make, is, it's a good thing that they made a mistake. It's terrible that it happened, but... It's, an, it's a wonderful opportunity for them to learn from how the world works. For me, for example, uh, I got in a minor fender bender. I actually, I didn't hit another car. I hit a curb and, and damaged my axle, my front axle. And I was 16, I think, something like that. And I learned from that mistake. And I'd, it, was, it was humiliating. I, I was really bummed out about it. I, 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 I was like, how am I going to pay for this? How am I going to explain this? You know, it was a big deal, but I learned from it. You know, I really learned from it. And what if my parents had not allowed me to make that mistake when they gave me the keys to the car? Did they say he's never going to get in a car accident? No, they probably thought, well, you know, he might get into a car accident, but they probably also thought, well, he's going to have to learn from making mistakes. He'll probably get in a car accident. He'll, I mean, I think within the first year of getting my license, I, I got not only a speeding ticket, but it was, <laughs> it was a ticket for speeding. And it was at the same time, I got a ticket for not wearing shoes while I was driving and wearing headphones. So I, I had a Walkman <laughs> on cause I didn't like my, my, I, or maybe my parents' car didn't have a cassette deck in it. Anyway, I got three tickets in one stop. Uh, you know, it was speeding, no shoes, and headphones. I never to this day understood the no shoes thing. Why do you have to? I mean, and the example I always give is, what if you are wearing high heel shoes? Do you think it's safer to wear high heel shoes when you're driving a car? What's wrong with having bare feet? And I know there's some explanation, like, you know, you need to have a hard surface. But I, I've driven without shoes on pretty much my entire, I still do it. Uh, if I'm admitting to some, you know, uh, tra- traffic violation, fine. Um, I can drive better without my shoes on, especially with dress shoes on. Cause you know, they're, they're stiff and they might slide off the pedal anyway. Plus I don't like wearing shoes, <laughs> but anyway, so that happened. And then I also crashed the car and broke the front axle and the wheel and what else did I do? I also didn't pay the, I didn't realize you're supposed to pay the ticket. I, I thought that you would get a letter in the mail because, because that happened to someone else. I thought anyway, so then my parents get this letter in the mail saying that 
my license has been revoked, which I didn't even know because I didn't pay that ticket. And because my license was revoked, my I no longer had insurance. <laughs> and so the insurance, the, my car insurance, sent a letter to my parents saying that this whole thing was happening. They flipped their lid as they should. But, but I learned. <laughs> I, I mean, uh, I could talk about other mistakes I made after that as well. But, you know, I learned something. Let's just every time I made mistakes like that, I, I learned, you know, and it was terrible. And my parents were not happy. But I paid off the fines, you know, my, my parents paid it. And then they said, you're going to pay us that money back. And I did. And I learned. And uh, it's not like my parents never told me, uh, you know, my parents told me all the time, drive safe. That was one of the biggest things that they still say to this day, drive safe, be careful. Don't get in trouble. You know, it was, you know, I took driver's ed. There was all this stuff, but I needed to make my own mistake before I could learn from it. And some kids are really prone to that. Some, and some of you parents out there, or even some of you people out there might be able to relate to that, that making mistakes was literally the only way you can learn from things. So, and those kinds of people make a lot of mistakes, but every time they make a mistake, they learn a little bit more. Now, I'm not saying you're just supposed to let your kids do anything. That's not what I'm saying. I'm talking against the overprotectiveness because there's some rationality to overprotectiveness that you have to, that I as a charismatic therapist would have to work against, right? It's rational to worry about your kids. It's rational to worry your kids are going to crash the car. It's rational to worry your kids are going to get hurt in, in a in a car accident. It's rational. It's normal. It's that's you'd be stupid not to worry about that. But that must be balanced with the job of parenting overall, which is to produce a non dependent person, someone who is independent, someone who can make choices on their own, someone who can make mistakes and learn from them, someone that can know that they they are capable of taking risks, making mistakes, and learning from them. So. As a parent, you're trying to protect them while also giving them the very firm impression from you that you believe that they can, that they're old enough to make this age appropriate risk and they're old enough and competent enough to deal with a mistake if it happens. So you're giving them all of that love and respect and belief in them, if that makes sense. Okay. So that is parenting. <laughs> now let's go into all the other causes. I'm going to uh, talk about some of the more ancillary causes, and then at the end I'll talk about schema and relational traumas, which is uh, more important. But anyway, so it seems heritability and genetics play a role in the development of dependent personality disorder. So how do they look at this? Well, there's you know twin studies. So you you have kids that are identical twins raised in different households and you see if uh, if there's a, a chance that if one person has dependent personality disorder does the other twin even though they were raised in a different home and there seems to be some heritability there in developing dependent personality disorder it's hard to measure it looks according to the research maybe about a third of the variability is due as attributable to genetic factors and again, as I was saying earlier, I don't believe that this is a disposition for dependency. I think this is a disposition for anxiety. And when you have a disposition for anxiety, then I think that that 
raises the risk of separation anxiety and it raises the risk of triggering the parents overprotectiveness and blah, blah, blah. So that's heritability. The other factor that can lead to dependent personality disorder is anxiety itself. So a child that has anxiety as a, as a child is, or in the family history, is more likely to develop de- dependent personality disorder. And this makes sense, right? If a child is anxious, then they're going to have a hard time venturing forth, right? And if a parent is anxious, you know, meaning that there's uh, anxiety in the family history, then they're going to have a hard time letting a child venture forth. Another factor, according to research, is physical illness. So children with a history of physical illness, they are more susceptible to developing dependent personality disorder. And I talked about this already. It makes sense that when a child has an illness, it can be very scary for the children and the parents, which can lead to more protectiveness and fear of taking risks. Also, a physical illness or disability that develops later in life can cause dependent personality disorder to emerge from dormancy. So essentially what can happen is, let's say someone is kind of, they have some traits of dependency, but then at the age of 40 years old, they develop chronic fatigue syndrome or MS or hypothyroidism or blindness or some lack of mobility or older age issues at the age of 65 or something. This can actually push someone who has dependent tendencies over the edge to developing full-on dependent personality disorder. This makes sense, right? Let's say that you you, know, you struggle with a little bit of incompetent schema. You tend to ask for help a little too fast, but you know it's not interfering with your life. And then all of a sudden, you have tremendous back pain, and you can't you can't do anything. You can't exercise anymore. You can't uh, you know you can't play with your kids with toys on the ground anymore because it hurts too much, you know, all these various different things. And it's, it's a huge bummer and there's a lot of depression that can happen from this, but it also uh, pushes that incompetent schema through the roof. Now you're like, Oh my God, I am, I'm completely incompetent. I'm worthless. There's, there's nothing. I can't do anything. There's just really no point in me trying to do anything that I, I, you know, I, I need everyone to do everything for me, even though that's not exactly true. You're impacted by the physical disability, but you aren't completely incompetent. You know, there's there's some wiggle room there. But because you were raised in a certain way that uh, caused a certain amount of incompetent schema and other schemas that are associated with it, the physical illness kind of pushed you over the edge. Okay, so let's talk about attachment. Of course, I'm going to talk about attachment theory. So dependent personality disorder is correlated with two attachment styles, disorganized and preoccupied, which makes sense, right? Because uh, the other two are avoidant or secure. And it, so if you're secure, of course, you're not likely to develop any personality disorder. And if you're avoidant, you're going to be much more on the other side of the spectrum. You know, avoidant people are pathologically independent, right? That's one of the qualities of them. So the other two are disorganized and preoccupied. So when you are preoccupied, uh, it, it, there's some overlap and some causation there. So if uh, – how much do I want to go into on this? There's a lot of detail on this. Okay, so say you, know, you have someone who was – as a child, they developed preoccupied attachment. They're you know, two years old, and they learned that in order to get love and attention, they have to pay real, real close attention 
to what their parents are doing, kind of game the system, demand, and they also believe that they can't do things on their own. That's actually one of the qualities that's, that's common in a lot of people with preoccupied attachment is that they have a real low self um, working model. Their working model of self is very low and their working model of others is very high. So of course that would lend itself to dependency, right? Now, so there's some overlap between preoccupied and dependent, but, but they're different. And by the way, borderline as well. So when we look at the DSM criteria, there are two things, two criteria that dependent personality disorder and preoccupied share. Uh, the two are urgently seek another relationship when a close relationship ends. So, you know, that's, that's common to dependent people, preoccupied people, and borderline people. So when a relationship ends, they will urgently seek another relationship. They will also be unrealistically preoccupied with fears of being left to take care of themselves. So dependent people, preoccupied people, and borderline people are terrified of abandonment. So they all share that. But dependent personality disorder people are different or unique to, uh, you know, in contrast to preoccupied and borderline in that they have difficulty making everyday decisions without an excessive amount of advice and reassurance from others. They need others to assume responsibility for major areas of their life, or they have difficulty expressing disagreement with others because of fear of loss or of support or approval, and they have difficulty initiating projects or doing things on their own. So being preoccupied doesn't mean you believe you're incompetent. It could mean that, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. Being borderline doesn't necessarily mean you believe you're incompetent. Plenty of people with preoccupied attachment, plenty of people with borderline personality are completely competent in life and do not believe that they need other people to pick up their, uh, you know, their mistakes and all those sort of things. But dependent people do, right? Now, what about disorganized attachment? Well, disorganized people grew up with highly abusive and or chaotic parents. And one of the available coping styles to that abuse is to become extremely submissive, which reduces the likelihood of being abused and makes you seem harmless to others. And so that's the path to dependent personality disorder. All right, let's talk about big five. If you're not familiar with the five-factor model, we have openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. And an easy way to remember these big five personality factors is to think of the world ocean. So you have O for openness, C for conscientiousness, E for extroversion, A for agreeableness, and N for neuroticism. So how do these correlate with dependent personality disorder? So openness to experience, there is a negative association, meaning that there are low levels of risk-taking and sensation-seeking among dependent personality disordered people. Openness to experience is, uh, you know, general appreciation of experiences. People who like to experience emotional experiences, they like adventure, they like unusual ideas, they're often creative or they like creativity, they get excited about creativity. They're curious and they value a variety of experiences. They're the kind of people who want to go to a different restaurant every day, that kind of a thing. Well, people with dependent personality disorder are, they have low openness to experience, which makes sense, right? Because they're just generally anxious and taking risks is scary to them. Conscientiousness. 
what is conscientiousness? This is self-discipline. These people are driven. They're thoughtful. They usually make better decisions than other people. And there's a negative association with dependent personality disorder. People with dependent personality disorder have low levels of competence and self-discipline, and, and thus they have low levels of conscientiousness. What about extroversion? Well, there's a slight negative association, meaning that there's a slight association with introversion and dependent personality disorder. But it's just slight. There's meaning that there's plenty of people with dependent personality disorder who are extroverted as well. Agreeableness. What's agreeableness? This is people who are considerate and kind and generous and trusting and see humans as good and relatively safe. They are they're trustworthy individuals themselves. They're helpful. They're willing to compromise their interests with, with others. And so agreeableness, you would think, would, would be associated with dependent personality disorder because the people with dependent personality disorder, not all of them, but a lot of them are kind, generous, helpful, this sort of thing. And, but there's only a slight positive association between agreeableness and dependent. And I'm compiling lots of different studies because there are various studies that point different directions. But my take on it is that uh, all the different research is that there's a slight positive association on average. So this means that for some dependent personality disorder people, they might be very agreeable. They might be very you know low on agreeableness. But on average, you're going to see people with dependent personality disorder a little bit more agreeable on average. Now, why wouldn't they be a lot more agreeable? Because it seems like dependent personality disorder people, again, they don't believe they're competent. They're often submissive and non-assertive. They will suppress their anger. Well, I think the reason why is because people with dependent personality disorder, not all of them, but a lot of them, as I said in chapter one, will suppress their anger and will be very, very resentful and angry on the inside and can be very stubborn. And so those people would not be very agreeable. They might be agreeable on the um, externally and maybe to people that don't know them very well, but the people that know them well know that they're, they, they can be really quite passive-aggressive and stubborn. Okay, what about neuroticism, the fifth factor? This is a tendency to experience negative emotions like anger, anxiety, and depression. And there is a positive association there. There are high levels of anxiety, depression, self-consciousness, and insecurity among people with dependent personality disorder. So people with dependent personality disorder, when we use the five-factor model, they tend to have most of the bad things when it comes to uh, you know, openness to experience, not so much. Conscientiousness, not so much. Extroversion, introversion, no, I mean, there, you know, there's a slight uh, introversion there. Agreeableness, you know, slight agreeableness, you know, uh, tendency, and lots of neuroticism, meaning lots of anger, lots of anxiety, lots of depression, lots of self-consciousness, this sort of thing. And it makes sense because in order to qualify for the disorder, you have to have a lot of distress and a lot of dysfunction in your life. Again, we're not talking about people that are just kind of dependent or just kind of helpful. We're talking about people who really suffer because of high dependency levels. All right. So now let's, so, so we've talked about parenting. We've talked about heritability. We've talked about anxiety, physical illness, attachment, big five. Let's talk about the behavioral perspective. You know, I don't want to go into too much detail on this, but it's actually kind of simple to go over in that from a behaviorist point of view, people exhibit dependent behaviors because those behaviors were rewarded somehow. 
and independent behaviors were not rewarded or even punished. As the children learn how to elicit caretaking responses from others, meaning their caretakers, they will refine their behaviors and become more adept at getting help from others. The behaviors are often reinforced in later relationships, you know, in adult relationships. They will further revise and refine their set of behaviors to elicit help from others, from from spouses, from medical professionals, etc. So basically, from a behaviorist perspective, it's a matter of being rewarded for dependent behaviors and being punished for independent behaviors. All right, let's go on to the object relations perspective. So I'm not going to go into too much detail on this, but in brief, the idea is, is that when you're young, you internalize a relationship in which you have a powerful, competent caretaker and a very incompetent self, a helpless self. So you rinse and repeat that dynamic over and over again, and you have a robust interject of um, the self is incompetent and other people are very competent. And then later in life, you will, uh, through projective identification, recreate this relationship and identify with the helpless self and socialize others and find others who are very competent, perhaps even controlling as a way of recreating that early relationship. All right. So now let's go on to schema therapy and the perspective. This is the one that I think really, really helps because schema therapy, and this is my modified version of it. I've, I've worded it differently and sort of changed some of the, the descriptions, but it's, it's heavily based on uh, schema therapy by Young. So in this model, we uh, have a point of view in which we have needs when we're young and we have various different needs. And when we don't get those core needs met, then that leads to maladaptive schemas, meaning a maladaptive way of seeing the world. We perceive the world in a distorted way. And then that leads to a need to cope with the maladaptive schema. And that leads to relationship frustration. And that leads to reinforcing the maladaptive schema and so on. So let me go into more long descriptions on this. So we all have core emotional needs. And here are here's my eight core emotional needs that I developed. Number one, we have a need for secure attachments, love, attention, attunement, empathy, nurturing, validation of feelings and needs. So this is, you know, love, attention, attunement, warmth, empathy. When we don't get those, when we don't get that need met, uh, then bad things can happen, right? And for people with dependent personality disorder, they probably did not get this need met enough, or it was conditional on the child being very dependent, but I'm not going to say everyone with dependent personality disorder did not get this need met. Because it, the, the thing, when I really started looking into all the different uh, people that I've treated with dependent personality disorder, I realized that there's a lot of paths to dependent. You, you can abuse a child and not be overprotective, and that can produce some a kid with dependent personality disorder. You can also have a parent who's very loving and very attuned, but anxious, and that can create a child with dependent personality disorder. So when we're talking about needs, we're, we're not quite sure which needs are the ones being frustrated. But it's possible for some people with dependent personality disorder to not have this need back. Number two need is safety, stability, and predictability. Again, hard to know if everyone with dependent personality disorder did, had this need frustrated, but probably some. Third is a sense of identity. And I guess as 
you think about people in your life or maybe even yourself who might suffer from dependent personality or just dependency in general, think about these needs. You know, did they get love and attention and attunement? Did they get enough safety, stability, and predictability? And I'm talking about early in life. I'm talking like zero to three, zero to zero to five. I'm not talking about when they were 10 years old. I'm talking about early. Now, certainly when you're 10, that can be affecting too, but usually personality disorders are developed early, early in life. Number three is a sense of identity, meaning that the parents help the child develop a sense of who they are and what they want. Some people with dependent personality probably had this frustrated, others maybe not. Um, The fourth need that we all have is a freedom to express needs and emotions, spontaneous expression of emotions, and thoughts, play, and creativity, and having others accept it. So uh, you're going to have some people with dependent personality disorder who did not have this need met, but some maybe not. The fifth one is the real kicker, and this is the need for autonomy and competence. So this need is definitely being frustrated in the individuals with dependent personality disorder. We all have a need as a child to feel independent, autonomous, competent. We're able to do things on our own given our age you know, age in, in life style. My cat is chiming in. There's also the need for acceptance and praise. Maybe not enough. Maybe it's hard to say. Seven is realistic limits and self-control. Hard to know if that one would be frustrated. Could be. And then eight is a need for guidance and mentoring. So definitely not enough. So the two main definite needs that are not being met in a child who develops dependent personality disorder is the need for autonomy and competence and the need for guidance and mentoring. Okay, so let's look at the possible schemas that can result from those needs not being met. So again, schemas are a way of seeing the world. It's an assumption about the world. And I have five different schemas out of the 18 that could be involved in the development of uh, dependent personality disorder. The first one is the schema that says, I am incompetent. So this is probably present for everyone who has dependent personality disorder. They probably all have the schema. And they would agree with some, if not all, of the following statements. I do not feel capable. I often need other people to help me. I don't don't cope well by myself. I'm better off when others are taking care of me. I have trouble doing things unless someone guides me. I often screw things up. I sometimes feel like a child in an adult world. Adult responsibilities often overwhelm me. Okay. So these people agree with some, if not all, those statements. I'm just incapable. I need other people to help me. And so that's the core of dependent personality disorder. So that's pretty obvious right there. Now, there are a number of different, according to schema therapy, you have these three different styles of coping with that perspective because that that perception of the self is going to cause a lot of strife, not only just internally because you're just beating yourself up about you can't do anything, But you're also causing strife in your relationship because a lot of other people are realizing that you can't do things on your own and they're frustrated by that. And so this creates a need to cope with that frustration. There's a lot of problems that generate from that assumption that is false about the self. And that's the point of schema therapy is like you believe you're incompetent, but you're actually not. It's a maladaptive schema. You developed this schema in response to the way you were raised or some circumstance, but it's actually a distortion. And so 
because you have this distorted belief about the self and about how the world works, it causes problems for you that you have to cope with in a variety of ways because you're making that assumption. Now, when you were young, the assumption made sense, but no longer makes sense. That's how schema therapy works. And I think it's very elegant in that description. There are three different styles of coping with each schema. Uh, one is surrender, two is avoidance, and three is overcompensation. And so when you have the schema that says, I am incompetent, a way that one might surrender to the incompetent schema is to be dependent, is to ask for help a lot, to check with others regarding decisions, to choose controlling partners, that kind of thing. Now, if you have an incompetent scheme, and maybe some of you have incompetent schemas, but you actually don't have dependent personality disorder, to surrender is to be on the dependent schema. But you might also avoid to cope with this schema, which is to avoid new challenges, to procrastinate on decisions, or to act like a child when, you know, to avoid adulting, as they say. So this is another dependent personality disorder uh, aspect. Remember when I talked about the different, you know, subtypes, we have, you know, the person who is childlike dependent, so that's like the avoidance, or the person who is life avoidant, that's the avoidant coping with the competent schema. And then you have overcompensation, which is to never ask for help, to never be dependent, and to be pathologically independent, and some, and then resentful because of that. And some people will be that way. You can have dependent personality disorder individuals who will overcompensate for their dependency by never asking for help. It's kind of rare, but it happens. Okay. So the second schema that can be present often in people with dependent personality disorder is the schema that I call the world is dangerous. People with this schema agree with some or all of the following statements. I often have the feeling that something bad is about to happen. I often feel like a disaster could strike at any moment. I sometimes worry about becoming a street person. I often worry about being attacked. I put a lot of effort into avoiding getting sick or hurt. I often worry that I'm going to get a serious illness. I'm a fearful person. I often worry about the bad, about the bad things happening in the world like crime, climate change, blah, blah, blah. I sometimes feel like I'm going to have an anxiety attack or go crazy or have a heart attack. I feel like the world is a dangerous place. Okay. So people with this schema will agree with some, if not all, of, the, of those statements. And this is a maladaptive schema that is distorted based on things that happened when the child was very young. So the way that someone might surrender to this schema is to obsessively read about bad things happening in the world, in the news, and then worry about them and to be essentially hypervigilant on you know horrible things that happen. just to assume, yes, the world is very that's the surrender part of the coping is it's like screw it, yeah. Uh, I believe the world is dangerous, and I give in to that idea. If you're trying to avoid the schema, then you would avoid dangerous situations excessively. So that would be congruent with a dependent person, to avoid risks. To overcompensate is to act recklessly, to do dangerous things, to have flippant attitudes, to uh, you know try to be the hero in a lot of situations. And some people with dependent personality disorder will exhibit this kind of overcompensation. Even in the pre- that's kind of the interesting thing about dependent personality disorder. Sometimes they're, they're in the midst of the same person at the same time. 
So you might have a, a dependent personality sort of person who will travel alone, but will make mistakes along the way. And when they come home, they depend on people to, um, you know, pick up the pieces for them or to do things for them. So some people with dependent personality disorder, they actually are desperately trying to gain competence, but they go too far by taking these humongous risks as a way of overcompensating for their schema. Now, sometimes that can actually work. It can actually help them, but sometimes it doesn't. Anyway, the third schema is the way I would describe it as I must stay close to my loved ones or else this is enmeshment. So people with this schema would agree with the following statements, some of them. I am still excessively connected to my parents, even though most people my age are not. Some people think I'm over-involved with at least one of my parents. I share a lot of intimate details with my parents. Otherwise, I'm made to feel guilty for withholding. I speak with my parents often, or else one of us will feel guilty or hurt. I often feel like I don't have a separate identity from others close to me. My parents are sort of living vicariously through me. I have trouble keeping a separate sense of myself. I sometimes feel as though I put myself on the back burner in order to have close relationships with others. I'm sort of susceptible to others' opinions and viewpoints. I don't have enough privacy. So with this, with this schema, I find that some people will agree with some of them and some will agree with another because I think this schema is trying to capture a, a wide variety of styles of enmeshment. But that's... That's those statements. Okay. So to, to, to surrender to this distortion is to just enmesh with others, to do what other people tell you to do, to be dependent on others, to, to allow invasion from other people, to stay close to attachment and imitate other people. To avoid this distortion schema is to avoid relationships in life altogether and avoid relationships that require independence at all. To overcompensate for this schema is to periodically get angry and cut off from attachments. You know, just be like, screw it, I don't need anybody. You know, people who are excessively autonomous. So again, someone with dependent personality disorder could have this schema. Not all of them have this schema, but some of them could. And they might occasionally have these moments where they just cannot stand their dependency and their enmeshment, and they will cut off from other people. They'll just be like, I can't stand this anymore. I'm done with you. And they, they just won't talk, say, say their main dependency person is their mother. And uh, when they're 25 years old, through various different enmeshment guilt trips, they just say, I'm done with, with my mom, and I'm not going to talk to her for the next year. But the schema is still there, and the dependency is still there. It's just manifesting in an overcompensated manner. Okay. So the fourth schema in the way I describe it is I must please others. I must be pleasing to others. They would agree with the following statements, some of them. I usually let other people have their way because I'm afraid of the consequences. If I assert what I want, something bad will happen. In relationships, I let the other person make the decisions. I don't really make decisions on my own. I often don't know what I want. The major decisions of my life were not really my own. People consider me a people pleaser. I resent others for not asking about my feelings. I hate confrontations. When I'm angry, I usually don't show it directly. When I'm upset at someone, I sometimes do passive things to get back at them. Okay, so this is ca capturing some of dependent personality disorder. 
on some level, it's it's capturing those people dependent people who are very pleasing and you know will do what other people say for them to do. But it's also capturing passive aggressive people, right? You know, this like when I'm angry, I usually don't show it directly. When I'm upset at someone, I sometimes do passive things to get back at them. So. Uh, so it's kind of capturing a, a few different things in this schema. I might actually break those out because I, I don't really like them being uh, conflated all the time. But anyway, so the way one would would cope with this schema is, one, if you're going to surrender, then you're just going to please others, but you're going to resent it, and you're going to choose controlling people who allow you to please them all the time, you know, really want you to please them all the time. To avoid this distortive schema is to avoid conflict or relationships altogether to overcompensate is to become oppositional and rebellious. And you'll see people with dependent personality disorder do all three of these. Sometimes they give in to the dependency and they depend on other people. Sometimes they'll avoid the dependency by avoiding relationships. And sometimes they'll overcompensate by being rebellious and stubborn. Remember with Michelle, she would get stubborn. That was her way of overcompensating of her kind of reaching her limit regarding her dependency. She's like, I'm constantly pleasing everyone and I'm not going to do it anymore. And the dependent person often will overcompensate in this immature self-defeating way in a way that makes them look even more incompetent, you know, as they're trying to gain competence through their assertiveness, through making decisions for themselves, they do it in such a haphazard, immature way that they look even more incompetent to people from the outside. And then afterwards, they'll look at themselves and see themselves as being incompetent when they did try to assert themselves, and it just becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. All right, the fifth schema involved in dependent personality disorder is the schema of bad things always happen. So people agree with some of the following statements here. If something good happens, I usually worry that something bad will follow. People consider me to be a careful person. I often worry about finances. I often worry about making wrong decisions. I often obsess over minor decisions. I believe that optimism is just setting yourself up for disappointment. Please consider people consider people consider me to be pessimistic. People sometimes say that I focus on the negative. I often feel the urge to warn others about possible bad outcomes. To, so to, surren- to surrender to this distortive maladaptive schema is to be very pessimistic and very careful to exaggerate negative events that happen in your life, to, to deny positive events, basically to just be biased about everything that's negative and to be denying of anything that's positive and assume that worth is gonna, the worst is going to happen. So that's surrendering to this distortion. To avoid this distortion is to avoid anything that could go wrong. So basically, you just have extremely low expectations and very low-risk behaviors. To overcompensate is to become pathologically optimistic. And you'll see people with dependent personality disorder will do this. A lot of personality disorders will have this element to it sometimes. But essentially, the self is like, oh, my God, bad things are going to happen. They always happen. I always screw things up. But it becomes so overwhelming that that schema, that distortion, that belief is just so hard to deal with that sometimes people will compensate by defensively becoming pathologically optimistic. And you might even know people in your life that are like this, that are just like, they're, they're frequently self-sabotaging, but at the same time, they're just like weirdly optimistic about their, your, their life. And you're just like, why are you so optimistic? Why are you always looking at the good possible outcomes when 
when bad outcomes could happen, and, and sometimes it's because of the schema, and sometimes it's because of dependent personalized or All right. So now let's finally get into the, the last little bit here of the causes, which is relational trauma. You'll, you'll often hear me talk about relational trauma. And this is perhaps my main conceptualization along with the schemas. So there are four relational traumas that are probably present uh, or in some combination or, you know, at least say two or three, at least two or three of these are present with people with dependent personality disorder. Number one is the relational trauma that you're of being told that you are inherently incompetent. And I've been talking about this through chapter one and two, which is, uh, you know, you're either being put down or you're not allowed to make your own, make your own mistakes, you know, because you have an anxious parent or a controlling parent. You're, you're constantly being told from an early age that you are incompetent. Now, maybe the child is suffering from ADHD and there, cause this is actually really common for kids with ADHD is that they are constantly getting in trouble they're looking around at other kids in school and saying like, how come those kids are doing fine and I'm not? And there's a belief system that develops in the kids, which is really tragic that I'm a screw up. There's something wrong with me. I'm dumb or I'm, I'm rebellious or I'm a bad kid or, you know, I'm incompetent. So it's some, something along those lines, but it also obviously could be from just flat out abuse, a parent just telling a kid that they're stupid. So there's some kind of relational trauma that happens when they're young that tells them I am inherently incompetent. The second relational trauma, and again, this is in relation to other people. The second relational trauma is that I am unsafe without a dominant caretaker. So unless I have someone in my life who is dominating my every move, I am unsafe. There is, there is no safety in independence. There is only safety in depending on someone not only who takes care of me, but someone that is dominant, someone who enmeshes with me. I can't just have a normal parent. I can't just have a normal spouse who cares about me. I need them to be dominant and micromanaging of my life. That's the only way I'm going to feel uh, safe. This can be from an anxious parent, obviously. It can be from abuse, obviously. Like if one parent's abusive, the other parent is not. It can happen from trauma, you know, like bullying at school or mistreated by the non-custodial parent at the age of seven. It could be from family trauma, like an illness in childhood or illness of a parent, this kind of thing. The third relational trauma is feeling rejected, feeling not good enough. This can be from a lack of attunement. It can be from doing, you know, not so well in school. Again, it could be due to ADHD at a young age. It could be because of abuse, just flat out rejection. It could be abandonment. But there's some level of, I am not good enough. People with dependent personality disorder believe that they are not good enough. The fourth relational trauma is a constant threat of being left alone. So abandonment trauma, early childhood, separation anxiety, this kind of thing. This is a this isn't always present with people with dependent personality disorder, but it, but it frequently is. There's some kind of relational trauma of, oh my god, I'm alone. I'm being left alone. I, I need my caregiver. Where are they? That you know that kind of feeling. Okay, so other factors that don't really fit into any of the categories that I said earlier that according to research are single parent households are associated with dependent personality disorder. I think for reasons that I said earlier. Child disability, 
uh, I think for reasons that I stated earlier. Child behavioral problems. Again, I think because when you have a kid who has behavioral problems early in life, they learn from experience, oh, I'm different from other kids, I'm incompetent, and then that also will suck a parent into becoming overly protective to, to save the child from what's happening in the school system, this kind of thing. Poverty is another factor that can lead to dependent personality disorder, probably because it stresses out the parents and makes the parents worry about the kids and makes the kids worry, this kind of thing. Also, lack of support for the parents, which makes a lot of sense. If, if the parents don't have enough support, then it's going to be harder for them to think straight when they're parenting. Parent mental illness, which of course makes sense if a parent has anxiety disorder or depression that's going to affect their parenting. And parent substance abuse. So all these things are factors that can affect the, the development of dependent personality disorder. And my cat wants me to hang out with her. So, um, And her name is Michelle, too. I sort of inadvertently... Uh, named one of my <laughs> fictional composites after my cat. I'm not sure exactly why I did that, because I actually don't think of my cat as having dependent personality disorder. She's being very, uh, you know, she's asking for love right now, which is completely uh, functional because um, cats and humans need love occasionally. So there's nothing dependent about her. All right, so that brings us to the end, and I will conclude here so that I can hang out with my cat. By the way, there's going to be some uh, some uh, uh, some merch that's going to involve my cat. Um, there's go- <laughs> my wife, the pod wife, has been working on this design for the cat. People are asking, like, "Oh, you got to have the cat involved in the merch because we hear her on the podcast so often in the microphone." And so she actually painted a picture, a, a pretty good representation of the cat. Uh, she painted years ago and she adapted it for a t-shirt or mug design. And the design is going to say, my cat wants to chime in <laughs> because that's often what I say inadvertently. You know, it's, it's always funny to think like these, these things that I just repeatedly say become t-shirts. It's just bizarre and flattering and, and funny to me. But anyway, so look out for that. That I don't know when that's coming down uh, the pike. Is that what people say? I don't know when that's going to be released, but um, you can go to Teespring and find all that stuff. There should be a link below. Anyway, so let's review what I went over today. I went over the ideology of dependent personality disorder. I talked about the research. I talked about how parenting is very important, overprotective, overinvolved, overcontrolling, some combination of those. And then I also talked about how anxiety and heritability of anxiety probably plays a role. Like if you're born with a temperament of anxiety, it probably plays a role. I talked about object relations and recreating the relationship, but mainly I talked about schemas, the, you know, some combination of the following schemas. I am incompetent. The world is dangerous. I must stay close to my loved one or else. I must please others. Bad things always happen. Not everyone with dependent personality disorder has those, but they probably at least have the I am incompetent schema and some combination of the others. And when you have the, these distortions, it leads to the behaviors that show up in the DSM. You know, when you believe you're incompetent, when you believe the world is dangerous, way more dangerous than it actually is, when you believe you must stay close to your, to your caregiver or else terrible things are going to happen, if you believe you must please others or else bad things will happen, if you, if you believe just bad things happen in general anyway, 
then you are going to have what the DSM calls dependent personality disorder. I mean, dependent personality disorder existed before the DSM, but in terms of the criteria, again, let's look at these. Because when you read the DSM, like I said in chapter one, when you read the DSM, you get a good idea, but you don't really understand where it comes from. When you understand the schemas that underlie this, then you're like, oh, okay. So again, has difficulty making everyday decisions without excessive amounts of advice and reassurance from others. So when we read that, it's just like, wow, so someone, they can't make just simple decisions, age-appropriate decisions without excessive amount of advice, reassurance, and maybe pushing from other people. Why would that be? Well, it's because they believe they're incompetent. They believe the world is dangerous. They're terrified. And they believe they must stay close to their caregivers. You know, they believe that they can't do things on their own. That's their, their, in their core, they believe, no, I'm incompetent. I can't do things, even though they can. They're told, that's the point. That, and that's critical that I'd say that, is that p- these people believe they're incompetent when they are not incompetent. They are not incompetent. There are incompetent people, you know. There are, you know, I'm incompetent in various things. There are people who really struggle with independence because they actually can't do things for developmental disability reasons or something else. And so uh, there are, you know, there's a spectrum of competence, but people with dependent personality disorder, whatever competence level they actually possess, they completely underestimate their competency level. Uh, the second criterion needs others to assume responsibility for most major areas of life, have, has difficulty expressing disagreement with others, has difficulty initiating projects and doing things on their own, goes to excessive lengths to uh, obtain nurturance and support from others, feels uncomfortable or helpless when alone, uh, urgently seeks other relationships when a relationship ends, and is unrealistically preoccupied with fears of being left to take care of themselves. So when you read the DSM criteria, you're like, okay, but when you understand the schemas of, I do not feel capable, I do not cope by myself well, I'm better off when people take care of me, I, I often screw things up. In fact, I almost always screw things up. And then the second schema, uh, the world is dangerous, and I'm positive something terrible is going to happen. And... I'm always thinking, oh my God, when is something bad going to happen? The third schema. I must stay close to my caregiver or else terrible things are going to happen. I must stay very, very close to my mother or my father or my spouse. If, I can't, if I'm not close emotionally, it doesn't have to be physically, but it can be physically, but it's often emotionally. If, if, if I don't let them know about everything that's happening in my life, something terrible is going to happen. The fourth schema, I must please other people. I must, I must not uh, you know, upset others. If other people are angry at me, I must get them to not be angry at me. And the fifth schema of bad things always happen you know, something bad is just right around the corner. And that works, you know, pretty well with the world is dangerous piece. And again, not everyone has all five of these schema, but they definitely have the I am incompetent schema, right? So when you understand where, it, and then of course, the the schemas emerge from uh, two core emotional needs not being met when we're very young, which is a need for a co- autonomy and competence and a need for guidance and mentoring. So not only... The ability to feel like, hey, I'm competent and, hey, I can do things on my own, but also other people guiding you and mentoring you 
not controlling, not micromanaging, but leading the way and believing in you. When you don't have that enough growing up, then you develop this incompetent schema. Now, some of the times that is developed because of bad parenting, but sometimes it's developed because of circumstances like with ADHD or an illness or something. All right. Okay. How many hours have I been talking? Two hours. So tune in next time when I do chapter three. I think in that chapter, I'm going to finish it out. I'm going to talk about outcomes, history, and treatment, which shouldn't take too long. I really wanted to talk about the causes today. I feel like I, I, feel like I did. I feel like I, I satisfied my long-windedness in this episode. All right, everyone. Thanks for being a patron, and take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really do.